0: SHE IS PERFECTLY DISGUSTIN. THAT IS ALL, AND NO MORE AT PRESENT, FROM YOURS RESPECTFULLY, MELISSA SMITH. THE MASTER SAT PONDERING ON THIS STRANGE EPISTLE, TILL THE MOON LIFTED ITS BRIGHT FACE ABOVE THE DISTANT HILLS, AND ILLUMINATED THE TRAIL THAT LED TO THE SCHOOLHOUSE, BEATEN QUITE HARD WITH THE COMING AND GOING OF LITTLE FEET. THEN MORE SATISFIED IN MIND he tore the missive into fragments and scattered them along the road. At sunrise the next morning he was picking his way through the palm-like fern and thick underbrush of the pine forest, starting the hare from its form, and awakening a querulous protest from a few dissipated crows, who had evidently been making a night of it, and so came to the wooded ridge where he had once found Melis. There he found the prostrate pine and tasseled branches, but the throne was vacant. As he drew nearer, what might have been some frightened animal started through the crackling limbs. It ran up the tossed arms of the fallen monarch, and sheltered itself in some friendly foliage. The master, reaching the old seat, found the nest still warm. Looking up in the intertwining branches, HE MET THE BLACK EYES OF THE ERRANT Melis. THEY GAZED AT EACH OTHER WITHOUT SPEAKING. SHE WAS FIRST TO BREAK THE SILENCE. WHAT DO YOU WANT? SHE ASKED CURTLY. THE MASTER HAD DECIDED ON A COURSE OF ACTION. I uh, WANT SOME CRAB APPLES, HE SAID HUMBLY. "Shan't not HAVE THEM. GO AWAY. WHY DON'T YOU GET THEM OFF Clytemnestra?" IT SEEMED TO BE A RELIEF TO MELISSE to express her contempt in additional syllables to that classical young woman's already long-drawn title. Oh, you wicked thing! I am hungry, Lissy. I have eaten nothing since dinner yesterday. I'm famished! And the young man, in a state of remarkable exhaustion, leaned against the tree. Melissa's heart was touched. In the bitter days of her gypsy life, she had known the sensation he so artfully simulated. Overcome by his heartbroken tone, but not entirely divested of suspicion, she said, "'Dig under the tree near the roots, and you'll find lots. But mind you don't tell, for Melis had her hoards as well as the rats and squirrels.' But the master, of course, was unable to find them, the effects of hunger probably blinding his senses." Melis grew uneasy. "'At length she peered at him through the leaves "'in an elfish way and questioned, "'If I come down and give you some, "'you'll promise you won't touch me?' "'The master promised. "'Hope you'll die if you do?' "'The master accepted instant dissolution as a forfeit. Melis slid down the tree. "'For a few moments nothing transpired "'but the munching of the pine-nuts.' "'Do you feel better?' she asked with some solicitude. The master confessed to a recuperated feeling, and then, gravely thanking her, proceeded to retrace his steps. As he expected, he had not gone far before she called him. He turned. She was standing there quite white, with tears in her widely opened orbs. The master felt that the right moment had come.' going up to her, he took both her hands, and, looking in her tearful eyes, said gravely, Lissy, do you remember the first evening you came to see me? Lissy remembered. You asked me if you might come to school, for you wanted to learn something and be better, and I said, Come, responded the child promptly. What would you say if the master now came to you, and said that he was lonely without his little scholar, and that he wanted her to come and teach him to be better. The child hung her head for a few moments in silence. The master waited patiently. Tempted by the quiet, a hare ran close to the couple, and, raising her bright eyes and velvet forepaws, sat and gazed at them. A squirrel ran halfway down the furrowed bark of the fallen tree, and there stopped. "'We are waiting, Lissy,' said the master in a whisper, and the child smiled. Stirred by a passing breeze, the tree-tops rocked, and a long pencil of light stole through their interlaced boughs, full on the doubting face and irresolute little figure.' Suddenly she took the master's hand in her quick way. What she said was scarcely audible, but the master, putting the black hair back from her forehead, kissed her, and so, hand in hand, they passed out of the damp aisles and forest odors into the open sunlit road. Chapter three. Somewhat less spiteful in her intercourse with other scholars, Melissa still retained an offensive attitude in regard to Clytemnestra. Perhaps the jealous element was not entirely lulled in her passionate little breast. Perhaps it was only that the round curves and plump outline offered more extended pinching surface. But while such ebullitions were under the master's control, her enmity occasionally took a new and irrepressible form. The master, in his first estimate of the child's character, could not conceive that she had ever possessed a doll. But the master, like many other professed readers of character, was safer in a posteriori than a priori reasoning. Melissa had a doll, but then it was emphatically Melissa's doll, a smaller copy of herself its unhappy existence had been a secret discovered accidentally by Mrs. Morpher. It had been the old-time companion of Melissa's wanderings, and bore evident marks of suffering. Its original complexion was long since washed away by the weather, and anointed by the slime of ditches. It looked very much as Melissa had in days past. Its one gown of faded stuff was dirty and ragged as hers had been. Melissa had never been known to apply to it any childish term of endearment. She never exhibited it in the presence of other children. It was put severely to bed in a hollow tree near the schoolhouse, and only allowed exercise during Melissa's rambles. Fulfilling a stern duty to her doll, as she would to herself, it knew no luxuries. Now, Mrs. Morpher, obeying a commendable impulse, bought another doll and gave it to Melis. The child received it gravely and curiously. The master, on looking at it one day, fancied he saw a slight resemblance in its round red cheeks and mild blue eyes to Clytemnestra. It became evident before long that Melis had also noticed the same resemblance. Accordingly, she hammered its waxen head on the rocks when she was alone, and sometimes dragged it with a string around its neck to and from school. At other times, setting it up on her desk, she made a pincushion of its patient and inoffensive body." Whether this was done in revenge of what she considered a second figurative obtrusion of Clytie's excellence upon her, or whether she had an intuitive appreciation of the rights of certain other heathens, and, indulging in that fetish ceremony, imagined that the original of her wax model would pine away and finally die, is a metaphysical question I shall not now consider.' In spite of these moral vagaries, the master could not help noticing, in her different tasks, the working of a quick, restless, and vigorous perception. She knew neither the hesitancy nor the doubts of childhood. Her answers in class were always slightly dashed with audacity. Of course she was not infallible, but her courage and daring in passing beyond her own depth and that of the floundering little swimmers around her— in their minds outweighed all errors of judgment. Children are not better than grown people in this respect, I fancy, and whenever the little red hand flashed above her desk, there was a wondering silence, and even the master was sometimes oppressed with a doubt of his own experience and judgment. Nevertheless, certain attributes which at first amused and entertained his fancy— began to afflict him with grave doubts. He could not but see that Melis was revengeful, irreverent, and willful, that there was but one better quality which pertained to her semi-savage disposition, the faculty of physical fortitude and self-sacrifice, and another, though not always an attribute of the noble savage, truth. Melis was both fearless and sincere perhaps in such a character, the adjectives were synonymous. The master had been doing some hard thinking on this subject, and had arrived at that conclusion quite common to all who think sincerely, that he was generally the slave of his own prejudices, when he determined to call on the Reverend McSnagley for advice. This decision was somewhat humiliating to his pride, as he and McSnagley were not friends. But he thought of Melissa and the evening of their first meeting.